Welcome to the Hello Someday podcast, the podcast for busy women who are ready to drink less and live more. I'm Casey McGuire-Davidson, ex-red wine girl turned life coach, helping women create lives they love without alcohol. But it wasn't that long ago that I was anxious, overwhelmed, and drinking a bottle of wine a night to unwind. I thought that wine was the glue holding my life together, helping me cope with my kids, my stressful job, and my busy life. I didn't realize that my love affair with drinking was making me more anxious and less able to manage my responsibilities. In this podcast, my goal is to teach you the tried and true secrets of creating and living a life you don't want to escape from. Each week, I'll bring you tools, lessons, and conversations to help you drink less and live more. I'll teach you how to navigate our drinking-obsessed culture without a buzz, how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst-case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hey there. I've got some big news for you that I have been not so patiently waiting to tell you about. After six months away, my super popular completely free masterclass is back and it's better than ever. I've been working on it for months. So if you have been struggling to get sober momentum, please go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class. You can sign up for my free training, Five Secrets to Taking a Break from Drinking, even if you've tried and failed in the past. In this 60-minute masterclass, I am going to share with you all the things you need to stop doing because they're setting you up for self-sabotage and what you need to start doing instead. I am giving you the steps and the mindset shifts that I go through every day with my private coaching clients, and it is completely free. So if you are sober curious, if you've been thinking about taking a break from alcohol, this class is going to set you up for success. I promise you it is worth your time. So hit pause on this episode, go to hellosomedaycoaching.com forward slash class and save your seat. Hi there. Today, my guest is Erica C. Barnett. Erica is a longtime political journalist and the author of Quitter, a memoir of drinking, relapse, and recovery. She founded and edits the website Publicola, which covers local news and politics in Seattle. I'm really excited to have Erica on today because we actually got to talk to Erica about her book a couple weeks ago. I'm a member of a pretty awesome sober book club here in Seattle. We used to gather monthly at my friend Ingrid's house for brunch and discussion and to see a bunch of people. And you might know about Ingrid or have heard her talk. My sixth podcast episode was with her about life without alcohol and how to avoid being lonely and finding friends in sobriety. But last month, we read Quitter. Erica joined us to talk about the book, so we felt like we had a celebrity on the call. And I loved the discussion because we had 15 women on the call who I actually know pretty well. And it was amazing to me how much I learned about them 
as they asked questions and had a discussion about Erica's book and to learn what different parts of the book resonated with each of them and the number of topics that we were able to dig into. So Erica's book makes it clear that it often takes a lot of trying to know what works for you and that being able to move from relying on drinking pretty heavily or as your main coping mechanism to not drinking and being able to sustain that often takes a number of tries. And I know that was true for me and Erica's book goes into a ton of detail around that as well as all the different ways that she tried or the supports she used to finally stop drinking and move forward with her life. In this podcast, we're going to talk about how helpful cognitive behavioral therapy was for Erica, how a lot of doctors and counselors and public policy even push, um, they're only aware of 12-step programs as a support to quit drinking, which is somewhat of a one-size-fits-all approach, which may not work for women, as well as a more holistic approach. And also about how women during quarantine, during COVID, are drinking more and more and how that's becoming more problematic. So Erica, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I feel like I know you now after talking, both reading your book and talking with you on the book club. So I'm really excited to have this discussion. Me too. Yeah, the, the book club was was wonderful, and I loved getting to know all of you guys a little bit. Um, and uh, and it's just it's always so fun to listen to people's own experiences and how they got sober and how they're staying sober because it's like it's just so different for every person. And um, I know that a lot of people in the book club are members of another recovery group, a non twelve uh, step recovery group. And you know, I got sober using t- the twelve step program. Um, and a lot of other tools that I describe in the book. So, um, you know, it just was really a lot of different things that ended up working for me in combination after, um, after relapsing, as you said, over and over again. Yeah. And it was a little bit of sort of a trip down memory lane for a lot of us because you live in Seattle and did a a ton of your drinking here. All of us clearly um, did a lot of drinking in Seattle, right? Um, And so both the bars you mentioned, the places and neighborhoods you mentioned, um, some of the women in the group had gone to some of the same outpatient or inpatient programs that you mentioned in the book. So we talked about, you know, some, some uh, PTSD, some women were feeling as they, as they read different portions of the, um, the programs that you'd been to, but to get started for people who haven't read the book, will you tell us a little bit about it and your story? Sure. Um, so the book is called, um, or the, the subtitle is a memoir of drinking relapse and recovery. And it's really a book about relapse. Um, I mean, it, it tells kind of my whole story and my drinking story, but, um, most of the time I think that I was really drinking heavily. I was trying to quit and, you know, so, so the book is about all the things that I tried to do to quit and how things just kind of kept getting worse and worse and worse. And, you know, in the process of quitting, relapsing, trying new things, you know, I tried all different kinds of therapy. I tried AA, I tried non-AA groups, I went to inpatient, outpatient, detox, like everything you can imagine. 
Um, you know, I, um, I learned a couple things. Or I learned a lot of things, but one is that there's no such thing as rock bottom. Um, the only rock bottom is death. And, you know, you can decide and come to that realization that today is the day to quit, you know, after drinking for a year and not really losing anything, or you can be like me. Um, and I believe that I had to go through everything that I had to go through to get to sobriety for myself. But, um, you know, I lost my job. I lost my friends. I lost the trust of my family. And, um, and I did get sober despite all that. And, um, and that was after like, I don't know how many relapses, dozens. Um, and so uh, I, I think the main sort of point of the book is that you can still find recovery, whatever that means for you, um, even if you don't find it right away. And you shouldn't think of, um, of relapse if you want to think of it as a relapse. I mean, there's, there's different ways of conceiving of, you know, slips and drinking again and, and things like that. Um, I just use the word relapse because it, it feels true to me. Uh, and, um, you know, you can, you can relapse over and over and you can still get it. Yeah. Whatever it is for you, you know. Well, I think that there is not a single person who loved drinking, whether habitually, the way it made you feel etc. And has stopped drinking, who didn't fight it for a long time, didn't worry about it, didn't have a whole bunch of day ones where they were like, that's it, I'm going to take a longer break. And then three days later, four days later, three months later, goes back to drinking and finds themselves in the exact same place. And I think that reading your book, and realizing how many times you tried to quit and actually how much more dire it seemed to get over the years, you know, to the point where you were going to detox facilities, um, that there is a day for everyone who doesn't, you know, doesn't stop trying and lives a happy life in sobriety where one day, and you don't know what day it is, that just happens to be your last day one. And as long as you don't stop trying, regardless of how many times you've tried and failed, it doesn't mean you're not going to succeed this time. Yeah, actually, the way you put that your last day one just kind of gave me chills right now, because I was just thinking about like what my last day one was. And yeah, it was just, um, it was just really like any other day in my life at that time. Um, and I just woke up and I realized that I wasn't going to drink anymore. And I don't know what changed. And I think like, it's been really interesting. The book's been out for a few months now and I get, you know, just tons and tons of feedback, um, over social media and email, um, about, you know, people from people who've read the book, who are not, uh, who have a family member who is an alcoholic or an addict, um, and they say that the thing that was most surprising and often most helpful for them was realizing that it wasn't that, you know, they have to push the person to hit rock bottom or the person just needs to like get a little bit worse. It was that there's, there's really no way of predicting when that last day one is going to happen. Um, and you can't really push it or force it either. I mean, that's one of the one of the tragedies of the way we think about addiction in this country is that we think that you can get people into a situation, whether it's by putting them in jail or forcing them into treatment or, you know, not helping them out financially anymore. So they end up on the streets or whatever. Um, we think that that is going to push people to, you know, actually, quote unquote, get it. And it just doesn't work that way. I don't know anybody who's gotten sober that way. Yeah. Unless and they I, go ahead. Independently ready. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I think it's also the concept, which I, I love this, this phrase of you can't hate yourself. Well, you have to love yourself enough not to drink because, you know, I don't know what the right answer is for people who have hit increasing bottoms and just are in a really difficult place and are, are sometimes dragging down family and friends with them and their, you know, their parents and spouses are just having a really difficult time. But I can't imagine that when your life sucks enough and you have zero support, that's going to help you pull yourself out, you know, because then you don't really, I mean, you need layers of support to build yourself back up again and, you know, to deal with all the habitual addiction, psychological trauma, coping mechanisms that, um, that drove you to drink in the first place. And so by leaving someone with zero supports, you know, and they're just destitute, that's really hard to, to have them pull themselves together at that point. Yeah. I mean, I, I had support the whole time, even though I didn't feel like I did, I felt like everybody had abandoned me. Um, but I, but I had tremendous support. I mean, I came out and I was, of, of, you know, the last, um, detox that I went to, which is, um, which is how the last thing that I did, you know, in the treatment system before getting sober. And I didn't think I had any trauma. Like I was like that, that whole concept of trauma, like I had always thought of myself as this very self-reliant person and somebody who, you know, you know, anything that was bad that ever happened to me, I could just kind of brush it off and move on. And like, yes, I am an, a very resilient person, I think. Um, and I think all of us um, who come out of addiction are resilient, like inherently, because we have, um, you know, we've come out of a really traumatic experience. But yeah, I had no idea I'd ever had any trauma in my life. I mean, I had to go to therapy for a couple of years before I was able to really deal with a lot of the stuff that um, that I would ultimately, you know, sort of start taking on. But that was like years into sobriety. So uh, yeah, I think that there's it's it's not just you know you go into treatment and um, and you don't have any supports coming out or you don't go into treatment and you just try to white knuckle it. I mean that's so unlikely to work. I know it works for some people, but, um, but I think those people are, you know, kind of miracles. Yeah. um, Really hard for me. And I had a ton of support. When I love that you say resilient because, you know, it, it cracks me up because when I was drinking, I was like, what is wrong with me? Why do I have no discipline? Why don't, you know, why can't I follow through? Why do I keep, you know, sort of like the marshmallow test, right? Where you get one marshmallow and you're supposed to not eat it for an hour and then you get a second marshmallow. And I would always like drink, eat the marshmallow right away or like drink the bottle. Like I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to live a happy, healthy life, but fuck, there is a glass of wine in front of me. And, you know, I am not going to like not eat that marshmallow, right? And so, but then I think now knowing like, women who cope with life and somehow hold it together and go to work and manage kids and somehow still work out in the morning, despite being brutally hungover, like you are the most disciplined people in the world. Like, holy shit, you're running a marathon with like a ball and chain tied to your ankle. Like you are a badass and it sucks. And you can make your life so much easier by getting more support and kicking it. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I talk about in the book is like, people think that people who have addictions are lazy and, you know, and just weak. 
But I mean, it was so much work to maintain an addiction, like both from the fact that, you know, I kept earning a living and I would spend, you know, thousands of dollars a year, thousands and thousands of dollars a year on booze. And uh, not to mention on hospitals, on detoxes, on all the, you know, on therapy, on whatever. And I was still dragging myself into work every day, you know, somehow performing at a level that I didn't get fired until I finally did get fired. And um, yeah, and I just, I felt like absolute dog shit every single second of every single day. And it's so hard to even like, you know, I look back on that now and I'm like, I don't understand who that person was. Like, I, I mean, I do, but intellectually just looking back at it, it's like, wow, like you could have made it so much easier on yourself if somehow you had gotten this motivation like a little bit earlier, like, I don't know, about five years earlier than you did. <laughs> but, but no, I mean, I, I went, like you said, the ball and chain, like every single day, just dragging myself through life, feeling horrible, um, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, everything. And, um, yeah, it was, it was time consuming. Yeah. It's not easy. Like, and also like the amount of self-sabotage we do to ourselves, um, is crazy. And, you know, when you say it is not easy, it isn't like, I'm amazed when I finally stop drinking and make no mistake, that is not easy to do either. Some people are like, yeah, not drinking is hard, but drinking's pretty hard too. Like they're both hard. You just choose your rich one and not drinking gets a whole hell of a lot easier over time, whereas drinking gets harder and harder for your life. But, you know, I quit drinking and oh my God, all the overcompensating and the crazy thoughts and the trying to cope and make sure nobody knows and the feeling like dog shit, like that all went away. And I was like, oh my God, my life's not as hard as I thought it was for a decade. Yeah. I mean, I think the hardest thing about, um, about getting sober, and this is something that I actually do think that the 12 steps get really right, but so does cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, there's, you know, I think the two are very, very similar, um, in, in how they work. Um, the sort of writing down, um, what you've done in an honest and open way with yourself, um, like writing down the ways that you've hurt people or, you know, maybe it's not writing. I mean, CBT is really heavy on writing too. And I've heard that people who don't like to write really don't like either of these processes and Hey, I get it. Um, but writing down who you've hurt and how, and then thinking about, you know, and working yourself up to the point where you can say, I'm sorry. Um, that is, that to me was the scariest part. And I think it was one of the things that kind of stopped me from getting sober. Cause I, I knew I'd have to face all of that in some way. Um, but when you actually do that, it is such a healing process. And so that is the hard part. The hard part is, is doing, you know, you can call it amends or you can call it healing or you can call it apologizing or whatever, but it's making things right to the extent that you can with people. That's, that was really the hard part, but it was actually, I think the most rewarding part. And I'm sure like you hear that from people in AA all the time, but it, but it's also part of CBT, you know, yeah. you look at things realistically and don't over dramatize them and, uh, and try to deal with them. Yeah. And also having some self-compassion for yourself and whether that's realizing that you're not the worst human being in the world, because there are thousands of other women and men out there who've done similar things. And they say, yep, I did that too. Yep. That's normal. You know, nope. that's, you know, it, you finally get to a point where you can laugh over some of it. 
um, <laughs> you know, in retrospect. All of it now. That's the crazy thing. And like, I've got less than six years sober right now. I'm sitting here with, you know, five years and some months. Um, and I can laugh at all of it. Yeah. I laugh at all of it too, like, especially with other people who've quit drinking. I'm always like, you know, even with Ingrid, like, we're, I was like, yeah, my mom never gave me a Cabbage Patch doll. It's probably why I drank. Like, it's just kind of funny. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got fired from work after passing out in the bathroom on two successive days. Yeah. Like, exact same thing happened. They're like, like, really? Again? <laughs> Yeah. And I'm just like, wow, like you really didn't learn your lesson that first time, huh? You just had to come back and do it again. I mean, there's so much, and and it's so funny because like, I've talked to people, I've talked to people I worked with at the time um, who I wasn't really close to then. And we've talked since, and you know, there are people there who are, who are sober at my old workplace. And, um, and they're like, you know, of course they're like, yeah, we didn't think you were going to make it, but God damn, you are such a bitch. <laughs> you're such a bitch to us. And I was, I was like horrible to everybody there. And I was horrible to the women who were there who were trying to help me. And, um, and I talk about a couple of them in the book and I think I hopefully make it clear in the writing that like my thinking that they were horrible at the time was all about me. Yeah. All about me feeling bad. And, and now like that I've kind of, I've made amends to them and we've talked like, we can all kind of laugh about it now, which is just like such a gift. Yeah. No, I hear you. Like, you know, and it's a different kind of laughing because I would laugh at some of the shit I did when I was drinking, but it was sort of a, haha, I'm going to play this off. It's no big deal. Like, wasn't that funny? And now I like really laugh at it just to be like, wow, that was fucked up, but hysterical. Like I, at one point, um, was taking a cab to LAX with a coworker and I was brutally hung over on a business trip and just, I, I tend to get car sick anyway, but I was in the back seat and we were just stopping going throughout LA and we finally pulled up like at the airport and right before I threw up all over myself. Like I was like trying to roll down the window and breathe and like, you know, I'm, you know, this is ridiculous. And I was like, maybe he'll think I'm pregnant, but I was drinking a shitload the night before. So I was like, damn it. <laughs> and, you know, I said to my husband, I was like, you don't think he's going to tell anyone, do you? And he was like, you fucking threw up on yourself. Pretty sure it's going to get around. And I was like, yeah, uh, you know, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, that was pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> Diving back into to some of the topics that we talked about, I know in the beginning you mentioned that so much news is coming out that especially during the quarantine, during the COVID since February, March, like women and men, but women especially are drinking more and more. Can you tell me what, I know you're, you're really into the research and the public policy around this, but what are you seeing? Well, I mean, every, it feels like every day and, um, you know, a, a story just came out a couple of days ago that said that, um, that pe- people in general, Americans are drinking 14% more, um, and binge drinking some larger percent more. Um, but that most of that is among women and that's self-reported. So you can be pretty sure that the real numbers are higher. Yeah. Like double. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like double. I mean, yeah. Like, did you ever tell your doctor the truth when they ask how much you drink? I mean, never. Like uh, maybe two drinks a day. I don't know. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, women in particular, especially women with kids um, are, you know, are really having to take on more than ever before with no pressure valve 
that they can, you know, really release some of the tension that is, you know, caused by having to like live in the same space 24 hours a day with people and not being able to really get away, having to do, you know, most of the childcare, most of the housework and all the stuff that's always true. Only now it's more true. And there's no like vacation. There's no spa day. There's no like just getting out of the house. And like, I mean, you know, some, some people have access to daycare still, but you know, it's just, it's just so much more pressure and I think, um, you know, and I think there's also a culture, especially if you're like an online person and you're reading um, about, you know, what your friends are doing and you're on Instagram, I mean, there's so much pressure to to drink every day. I mean, and literally to drink every day. Like, uh, you know, I go on my Twitter feed and it's just, it's lots and lots of women talking about how, you know, it's five o'clock somewhere at three o'clock in the afternoon and starting, you know, starting their daily drinking. And it's, yeah, it's really, you know, people kind of, um, I, I beat this drum probably a little too much online um, and on Twitter particularly, and people are kind of like, you know, oh, she's such a killjoy, but, you know, this stuff actually does kill people. And the way people get addictions, you know, from the way people go from like a little bit of a problem drinker to, you know, a full-blown alcoholic um, in the middle of, um, you know, it, 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 in full-blown addiction, um, is, is by stuff like this. I mean, I didn't drink too much until I did. Yeah. Um, I didn't really start drinking heavily until I was almost in my thirties, actually maybe in my thirties. And I didn't really develop a problem until I was in my thirties. And then I was like off to the races and that was it. And so, yeah, I think we trivialize this stuff way too much and, um, and we think it's cute. Well, and I think that's, I completely agree with you. And, you know, with the data you know, being about women increasing binge drinking and daily drinking over the past eight months. That's one thing, but it's actually been increasing for 20 plus years. I mean, the numbers of women who binge drink, who drink daily, who drink um, way more than their mothers or grandmothers ever did is skyrocketing. And, uh, you know, a year or so ago, it came out that the highest increase in death rate among um, people from alcohol was uh, among white women aged, you know, 40 to 60, which is terrifying. So I mean, it is a real problem. And when people say, why, why can't I drink like a normal person? You know, sometimes it's like, hey, with the iceberg, you only see the part above the water. Like we don't know what everyone's relationship with alcohol is. But I think that there are way more women struggling with daily hangovers and drinking too much and the the cycle of thinking, oh my God, I won't drink and then saying screw it and drinking again, then we know about. I mean, every well, every time uh, you see someone on Instagram and are like, why can't I drink like them? Like, you don't know what they're going yeah, through. Yeah, you don't know. Like, just because they're presenting this face to the world doesn't mean that that's the real face and it's, and it's really what's going on. I mean, I think too, you know, one reason that you see a lot of, you know, I wouldn't say middle-aged women, but, you know, women starting at about 35 on up to about 60 um, who go from, you know, quote unquote, normal drinking to addiction or alcoholism is because, I mean, our bodies are just different and we, and, and I, you know, I don't mean to like be essentialist about it or anything, but we have more body fat. We absorb alcohol differently. It affects our livers and our organs differently. Um, and it tends to affect us, you know, faster. It tends to go from just 
you know, casual drinking to problem drinking to addiction a lot faster and on a faster progression than, than with men. And men also tend to kind of develop those habits when they're younger and their bodies are more resilient. And I think that, you know, the fact that that's kind of the most, the biggest growing category of people who are dying are, you know, in their forties and fifties and sixties should tell us something. I mean, that should cause massive, massive alarm, but, you know, because it's a trend that only exists among women, we see a story about it now and then, but we don't see, you know, I mean, imagine if that was, if that was men, if it was like, oh my God, middle-aged white men um, are all suffering from the same problem. I mean, it would be considered an absolute national emergency, but because we're talking about women, um, it, it isn't. And I think that's, you know, I think that's just really telling that, you know, every year or so we get another story and it's like, it's like, Oh, new study shows that, you know, that women are dying a ton more or women are binge drinking more than they were last year. And then it just kind of gets shoved in the drawer and nothing's ever really done about it. Well, and we don't want to admit it because, I mean, I know that when I was drinking a bottle of wine a night or a bottle and a half of wine, I still thought that those stories did not apply to me because I was drinking like all my friends were drinking. And, you know, it's not a problem if you're going to a bar with coworkers and having a couple of big glasses of wine and then coming home and opening a bottle and sitting on the couch with your spouse, right? Like, that's not a problem. And we also all think we're invincible and we also all think that, you know, dying earlier is not going to happen to us and all the crap. And, and that's normal, right? There, there are a ton of people out there. And I think that people think they can't get it. I said, look at COVID. People think they can't get it. I mean, everybody thinks they're invincible. Yeah. And you also like, it's so progressive and insidious. I mean, you describe this perfectly in a book, in your book, but it's, it's it's fast and really slow, right? So you somewhat don't notice the little bits of how it affects you and impacts you. Like for me, no one told me that I needed to quit drinking. Like it, people were kind of surprised when, including my husband, he was like, are you sure? Are you overreacting? I mean, I knew, right? Like I remember trying to put on mascara and my hand shaking and was just like, holy fuck. You know, I remember looking in my eyes and starting to be like, I feel like they're starting to look yellow. Like there were certain signs that, that I knew, but then I was like, oh, I must just not have, I must've drinking, drank too much coffee. Like that's ridiculous with like why my hand was like shaking, putting on mascara. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I, um, I remember, I mean, there was a friend who came over to my apartment when I was in, um, when I was in treatment the first time. And, um, he told me later that he came by and I said, and he said, I said, why did you stop by? Cause it was somebody that I didn't see very often. And, um, and he was like, well, I thought you might've died. And I was like, and this was, you know, this is my first, my first course of treatment. And so at the time I was like still in very severe denial. And I was in with a lot of women who, um, were not, um, we're, we're kind of about in the same place that I was at the time, or maybe a little bit, um, you know, not quite as far along in their progression. So I just kind of thought, well, you know, we're all fine. And I'm like these women. And so I, why would anybody think I would die? That's crazy. And, uh, and then I went to another treatment center and it was co-ed, it was much larger. And I just really got to see, you know, just the whole range of people 
Um, I met a woman who'd like had multiple organ failure, you know, multiple times and she was in treatment for the fifth or sixth time. And, you know, I met people who had to leave treatment because they were too sick and they had to go to the hospital and like, you know, be taken care of there and put on dialysis and things like that. So that's when I realized, I think, you know, oh, right. Like I'm not exempt from this. Yeah. This can actually kill me. And, uh, and I think that that just took a while for me to realize because it is just a slow progression. And, you know, from, I was like, I was, my hands are shaking all the time by the time I quit, like, and for the last probably year or two, which is nuts. Like, why would anyone live with that? But that was just how my life became. And I didn't really think a lot of it, or I didn't think I had many, you know, options. Yeah. Because quitting wasn't an option. That's too hard. You know, that's what I told myself. Or you're like, I will fail anyway. So what's the point? Or, you know, all those thoughts that sort of keep you drinking. And I think that what helped me stop was not the idea that, oh my God, this, I'm going to get really bad. Cause again, that's hard to imagine, you know, the idea that, you know, it won't happen to you, but Mm -hmm. just trusting other people that it's better, you know, life is better without alcohol. It's not this awful experience of isolation and deprivation and longing for the rest of your life. And, and I was asking you just before we got on the call, because I wanted to know, like, what's your life like today? You know, you were talking about going to the gym and going on vacation and doing a ton of work. And after reading your book of all those years of struggle and some real hard bottoms, like in my mind, that's night and day, you know? Yeah, it's completely different. I mean, I, um, let's see, you know, six years ago before I, um, I went to, um, the last treatment center that I went to and then got sober a little bit after that, I was spending, um, most of my time just sleeping, like drinking and passed out. And I was so sick and I, you know, it was hard to move around physically And, um, and I didn't do good work. And like the idea of writing a book, I mean, I had it in my mind, you know, that it was something I would do someday if I could ever quit drinking. Um, but I didn't think that it was possible. And now, I mean, my, my life is so full, you know, I, um, I have a partner who has never seen me drink, which is just wild to me. Um, and, you know, and it's kind of like, it's kind of one reason I keep going to, um, to AA meetings is so I can be around people that I can talk about this shit with. Yeah. <laughs> Cause my partner is just like, you did what? Huh? <laughs> um, and so, but that's really, I mean, that's really amazing. I, I run my own business, which, um, I started, you know, pretty quickly after I stopped drinking, but now it's self-sustaining. I have an employee, which is also nuts. Um, and yeah, and until the pandemic, I mean, I traveled all the time, which is one of the really big perks of running your own business. And one reason I, I mean, among many reasons that I didn't want to work for anybody else. And I just kind of, I made that decision. Um, and so, um, where would you travel to? Well, the last place I went before the pandemic, uh, was Tokyo Ooh. and, it was so fun. Um, and then we have plans to go. I, I have plans to visit um, my college best friend um, who lives in uh, Germany. And I try to kind of make make my way to where he lives via, you know, various kind yeah. of other countries around there every year. And then that trip was planned for March. So it didn't happen. But um, and now we're doing kind of stateside stuff. Yeah. Um, so 
Yeah. So it's, you know, it's kind of, it's coming back. I mean, that was, that was such an essential part of my life. And I actually started a blog that was a sober travel blog. And then of course, like the pandemic hit two seconds. Oh my God. I love that because I (laughs) was terrible. I'm a huge traveler. Like I'm a homebody and I love traveling the world. And I think it is one of the things that trips up so many women that they can't imagine going on vacation and traveling without alcohol. So I would love to read your sober travel blog. And I have a ton of tips too, because since I quit drinking, you know, I went to Venice and Croatia and Amsterdam and Greece and Mexico and Hawaii and um, camping with friends and all the things. I mean, I drank 365 nights a year. So I drank during everything, but there are really concrete strategies of, you know, from, you know, planning your trip on Pinterest, like don't look for the best cocktail bars, look for the best brunch places, the best cafes, the morning bike tours, the, you know, all these cool things that you kind of had blinders on and only gone to the restaurants with the amazing bottles of wine and only gone to the bars and, you know, Oktoberfest, like there's a whole world out there that you haven't even looked at. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately I thought that maybe quitting drinking would make me into more of a morning person and six years in it has not sadly. (laughs) I'm still as nocturnal as I was before. I've always been a morning person, but I would just like drink early and pass out early. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. I did that too. Actually, I did briefly become a morning person because I would wake up with the shakes at 4 a.m. for like a year. Well, that's one way to turn it around. You're like, I'm a morning person Yeah, that was that was a whole interesting period of lying to myself about about that because you know I mean if I can get to the store when they open at seven a.m. to get my first bottle of the day then I'm a morning person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know <laughs> the capacity for self delusion is like infinite. So one of the things I loved on our conversation at the book club is you talked. I don't know that much about the treatment system. It wasn't sort of my path and my experience, but I thought it was really interesting how you talked about how that system, that business is really focused on repeat customers, how the 28-day treatment area came around, and also how it's not really a good fit for women. Like when you were talking about like women being told that they need to do chores because um, (laughs) sort of your ego need to be broken down or needs to be broken down and how you know, a lot of the women there are wives and mothers and, you know, chores are not the thing that they need to do to heal. So tell me about that world, because a lot of people may not know about it or may have gone through it and don't have a critical eye as to, quote unquote, why it didn't work, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, and what was so weird, the first place I went was all women, and it was the same way. I mean, the attitude was, you don't know how to live a responsible life. You've never had any responsibilities, and um, and we need to, one of our jobs is to teach you how to do basic things, because you don't know how to do that anymore. And so- It's so condescending, too, right? It's so condescending and paternalistic. Yeah. And, and I will say, I mean, I did have a good experience at the second treatment center I went to, but it was kind of despite a lot of things. Um, and there's a lot I would change. But well, and them- I, I think that treatment does help a lot of women. I mean, one of the things I love when I go on these like secret Facebook groups of women, when someone's like, I'm going to treatment tomorrow or whatever, there's so many women being like, 
that's so brave. I'm so proud of you. You are prioritizing your life. It is going to be amazing that you get to work on yourself. So I love that attitude too, because you're finally like being like, okay, I need to do this. And what I've tried isn't working. But I also, when you were talking about it, see the flip side in terms of why it's not like a panacea, like you're going to be fixed in 28 days. Oh yeah, definitely not. I mean, the, when I, so when I went to the second treatment place, um, it was, as I mentioned, it's a lot larger. So I met a lot more people and, you know, there were, there were people who were in there for the 19th, 20th time. And you look at that and, you know, and you say, Hmm, okay. So are you going to come in here 25 more times? Or is there like a point where you say treatment doesn't work, at least not for you, at least not this system. And, um, and I think that part of the reason it doesn't, um, it isn't effective at actually, um, you know, quote unquote, getting you sober the first time is because it's not designed to, uh, to teach you what to do when you relapse. Um, the, the treatment for relapse is more treatment in, you know, in the minds of treatment facilities. And so, um, if you fail, it's because, you know, if you quote unquote fail, by, um, by drinking or using it again, it's because you didn't go to their inpatient program or you didn't do, you know, the follow-ups at three months, or you just, you fail to stay in their system in a proper, you know, in a proper way, according to them. And so you need to come back to treatment for 28 days. And I find that, you know, I find that really infuriating because I have a small sample size. I've only been twice, but both times I went, they taught me how to avoid triggers and they taught me, you know, tools for not drinking again. But the fact is most people do drink again when they leave treatment. That is just a statistical reality. And so at that point, you know, treatment centers, if they want to be effective, should say, okay, how do we help people deal with it when that happens? The problem is if they were effective that way, they wouldn't get people coming back in the door. And it's the revolving door that allows, you know, so many hundreds and thousands of treatment centers to exist in this country. Um, if they, if they worked, if they, you know, got people sober and they were able to stay sober, then um, a lot of them would shut down, frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you also mentioned, which I had no idea about is the concept of how it became 28 days. Like, you know, I mean, there's even that Sandra Bullock movie, right? 28 days, but tell me. I wish we watched in treatment. Oh, you did? Was that like, here, learn. I guess. I mean, I actually really like that movie, but you know, it's, it's very cheesy and it presents a very unrealistic version of how things go. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it came out of, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to forget the exact details of this, but it came out of um, what, um, what the military was willing to pay for soldiers who came back from, you know, from foreign wars addicted to various things, um, you know, heroin uh, primarily um, and alcohol and um, it was never based on any kind of, uh, of actual like scientific knowledge about how the brain works or how long it takes to kind of get your, um, get your brain back after a period of addiction, because that's totally, you know, dependent on the person, dependent on the drug or alcohol. Um, and what the latest science says is that, you know, simultaneously treatment should go on for a lot longer than 21 days, 28 days. Um, for some people it is 21 days. Um, but also it doesn't necessarily need to be inpatient that entire time. Cause one of the things that paradoxically happens when you go to 28 day treatment and you're kind of locked off from the world is even though you're learning to do, you know, quote unquote, learning to make your bed and learning to clean the steps or whatever, um, 
you, which by the way, I think is a way for them to save money as well. On I planes, thought that but, too, like clean the but, toilets. It's like, well, yeah, exactly. how much are we paying you? <laughs> you know? but, yeah. It, it, but at the same time, you're kind of, you're, you're kind of so removed from the normal world that you're not dealing with anything. And so, um, what is most effective for most people. And I don't know that this would have been effective for me because I was, you know, the kind of person who couldn't go more than a couple hours without drinking. But for most people is, um, is intensive outpatient treatment where you're just checking in, checking in, checking in, but you're not, but you're also living your life, mm-hmm. you know, and you're maybe, if you have a job, you're working your job. If you have a family, you're seeing your family. Um, or you're living in sober living, which I know, um, you know, a lot of women that, um, or a number of women that I, that I've met over the years, you know, with husbands and kids and, you know, and all those responsibilities end up going to sober living and living, you know, away from their families for a while. And that can be really helpful. So, but the 28 day, you know, compressed track, it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I remember there was one lecture I went to at um, the second treatment facility I went to, and it was so interesting, but it was about how the brain, how like neuron rece- neurons and receptors in the brain interacted with alcohol and drugs and uppers and downers and all this stuff. But I, I watched it about a week in and I absorbed zero because your brain like can barely process anything by the time you get out of that 28 day treatment, you know, you're sort of coming out of the fog, but that takes years. Yeah. And so the kind of, there's also like an issue with just the pedagogical nature of it. Like you're sitting there watching videos and often the videos are from the seventies, you know, and you're reading books that are also from the seventies. And um, Oh my God, that's reminded me of like the bad sexual harassment videos that you used to have to watch, (laughs) like in work to like check off the, yeah, I've done the ethical treatment thing. And I was like, Jesus Christ, what, you know, this yeah, is like, I mean, it really, it really felt like being in like sex ed and like the yes. fourth grade or something, because you're, I mean, the, the, um, the treatment center that I went to, there's like, there are all these black and white videos. Um, the treatment center was somehow affiliated with, um, with this priest. It wasn't like a Catholic or religious treatment center, but, um, but there was a priest involved in it somehow at some point in its past. So we had to watch all these videos of this priest talking. And I mean, everybody made fun of it. Nobody listened. It was ridiculous. It was just a way to like get us to sit in a room for a little while and feel like we were spending our time doing something that was treatment related, but it was so silly. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, so I, I just, I think for most people treatment, 28 day treatment probably is a waste of money. Um, and it's expensive, right? It's very expensive, but for okay, some how people, much it's also it cost? Um, so mine, mine cost um, 10,000 and 12,000 respectively. So that's like on the lower end. I mean, you yeah. can spend a lot more, but, um, but for 28 but, days, that is not cheap for anyone. No. And, and I, I ended up, I mean, I had insurance, but I still ended up in just massive, massive debt yeah. coming out of, of, you know, the whole, you know, the hospitals and the detoxes and the whole thing. Yeah. Cause detox is also not cheap. You know, that's thousands of dollars. Wow. And that's just a couple of days, right. For medically yeah. supervised detox. Well, Rude and on. I, you know, I am truly believe like it takes what it takes and keep trying and keep getting support. And if you're doing something and it's not enough to help you stop drinking, if you want to, or if that's what you need to do, keep trying, right? Like we talked about, everybody has a last day one, but I do like, you know, I have friends who've been to intensive outpatient where they, they work and then three nights a week, they go for three hours or something on the weekend. 
And what I liked about what you've said is that, um, you know, you said that when you're an inpatient, they sort of teach you to avoid quote unquote triggers and it's not realistic, right? You're locked away from your home, from your kids, from your spouse who may or may not be drinking, from coworkers who go to happy hours or work stress or whatever it is. And that, you know, for the male concept of triggers, it's often like, don't go by that bar when you drank with your buddies or don't go to the party. And for, for you and for a lot of women, you know, we buy our wine at the grocery store, right? The grocery store is a trigger. People in your lives are triggers. Yeah. I mean, the, the grocery store was the hardest thing for me. And for, for a while I had to talk to somebody while I was actually like physically grocery shopping so that I would like not see the wine aisle and, you know, and, and the booze aisle, because it was just such, it was so familiar to me to just drop, you know, a box of wine or a bottle of vodka in my basket. And, um, and I think that, yeah, I mean, and I think a lot of women, like I was a secret home drinker and I live alone. Um, so it's very easy, but you know, I have visitors and, um, and so I, um, you know, the, the trigger was my home. The trigger was, you know, just, just everything between my home and, and the, and the store, it was the bus, you know, it was work. It wasn't like, Oh, you just have to avoid that bar and those buddies for a little while. Yeah. And, and I think that's more typical of women's experience. I mean, we do, we are more likely to be secret drinkers at home or to just, you know, drink some publicly and then some privately. I also did that for a long time. Yeah. So yeah, I just, I just, I found that to be completely absurd and, you know, Hey, I'm sure it works for some people, but, and it's good to know that, that, that such a thing as triggers exists, but you also have to learn like how to live with them. Cause you can't yeah. stop going to the grocery store. Yeah. Well, I agree. Like when I was in early sobriety and I always tell my clients, you know, Hey, think about this. Like, don't go to the grocery store when you're hungry. Don't go to the grocery store in late afternoon or evening. Like go in the morning when you're most, you know, you have your most willpower, your most plan. You're, it's not when you typically drink. And I listened to, you know, sober podcasts and sober audios when I was just shopping around, like with the earbuds in my ears, like that really helped me. And I wouldn't go by the wine aisle. I mean, that would be insanity. And I, you know, I wouldn't buy my husband beer for probably six months. Like now I do, because it's not, um, it's not triggery for a while. But for a long time, I was like, I'm not buying you beer. Like, I didn't make him not drink in the house because beer wasn't my jam, but there was zero wine there to this day is no wine in my house. Like, nope, you can bring it and you have to leave with it because a bottle in my house, A, what's the point? And B, I'll just, it will absorb a corner of my mind. Like I will know where it is at every moment of my day. Um, But you're right. Like the triggers are, I mean, I drive around my town I drank in every single place there was like, you know, I drove to my friend's house. We didn't think about this. We have a great Seattle, she recovers group. And one, one person had this um, fabulous, great get together sharing circle during COVID. It was like under an open air barn. We sat far apart. Everyone wore, wore masks. It was, it was awesome after we hadn't seen each other in six months. And it's in my neighborhood. I happen to live near 90 wine tasting rooms. I'm in Woodenville, like Redmond, <laughs> Woodenville. So we were just like, come out to our area. We'll go to her farm. It'll be fabulous. So we had all these women driving from like downtown Seattle, West Seattle. And you have to go through the wine circle where mm-hmm. there are just, and 
and people, you know, people are like, that was kind of triggery for me. And I'm like, oh shit, I didn't even think about that. It, yeah. You know, cause I'm four and a half years in and I'm used to it, but I was like, yikes, that was probably the best <laughs> yeah, ever. Yeah, I mean, you have to remember and be compassionate for that first six months. Yeah, um, I felt like, I felt like anything that happened would like, I'd be knocked over and grabbing a glass of wine. Like, yeah. just, and now it's like, I can go to a bar and it's almost like everything is just kind of blurred. Well, I <laughs> notice know? it. I do notice it. Um, of course I do. Like people are always like, do you ever want to have a glass of wine? And I'm like, yeah, of course I do. It looks great. And I used to love it, but I don't want any of the shit that comes with it. Like, and it is not worth it to me. Like I know enough. I've tried to stop and then gone back to drinking and it takes me to the same place. So no, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, I love that thought of the triggers and and also helping people manage the triggers, right? Because sometimes if you're if you're going to AA, you know, I do coaching. If you're um, going to intensive outpatient or working with a therapist, you get to talk about those triggers in real time and your fears and what you need to prepare for, right? Like, oh God, I'm going to work and the team's going to happy hour on Thursday, and I really feel like I need to do it or at least stop by. You get to talk about that, and maybe the answer is don't go. A lot of times it's don't go. Like if you had the stomach flu, you wouldn't go. But, you know, it's still there. That's a trigger. And then feeling like you're missing out or you're being judged for not going, as opposed to you're going away for 28 days with zero triggers and then you're out with very little support. Yeah. And I think the peer pressure uh, on women also is just greater to participate in those things because otherwise, I mean, we want to be at the table all the time, right? Like, because we're so often excluded from tables. So if there's like, like, I'm not, I'm, you know, I, this is hypothetical. I work for myself. Okay. And for, very much for, 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 yeah. for this reason among many others, but like, you know, you might not get invited to go play golf with the guys, but you're probably going to get invited to the happy hour. And then if you miss that, like, what does that say about you? And, you know, just the amount of pressure is, is real. And I, and I feel that too, as a journalist, when I, um, when I first quit, I thought, oh my God, like, I'm never going to be able to network with people because all networking happens over drinks. I mean, mm-hmm. like, and that is, that is totally still the case, but I found that that kind of networking actually wasn't as valuable as I thought it was. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure I'm missing out on things, but I also um, know how to just kind of um, be a pest now in a way that I didn't, mm-hmm. you know, just as a journalist and kind of keeping myself on people's radar and I don't have to drink and go to the bars and spend a lot of money to do that. And also like there's this thing called coffee. Yeah. And, oh my God. Which I truly did not realize before. Like I never considered let's get coffee as I know that sounds silly. That does. Cause everybody you're in Seattle. I drink, coffee. Yeah, I drink coffee. Everybody in Seattle, drink, but it did not occur to me that like you could say, let's meet at 10 o'clock in the morning over coffee. That was just unthinkable to me, which yeah. sounds, I, I realize like so much of the stuff we think sounds insane and it's all self-justification, but that is truly what I felt. <laughs> so now I, I love, go. I love like I've turned sort of dinners or happy hours with a lot of my girlfriends into brunches. Like I love Sunday brunch. Plus you get away from your kids. A lot of my friends have kids and you know, you're like, see ya. 
But we go down, since you know Seattle, to Pike Place Market, and we meet at Cafe Campania, which is this incredible French restaurant. And they have just amazing espressos and lattes and incredible food. And you go get flowers in the market afterwards, and you're by the water. It's just a beautiful, special experience, I think, more than going out to a restaurant and drinking a ton of wine. So, you know, you just sort of get creative. And like you said, your world actually opens up. Yeah. I mean, there's so, there's so much, there's like a whole day before noon. I mean, I'm not a morning person, as I said, but like, I was never like ready to face anything before noon before. Oh yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it is amazing how the world, and you just kind of realize, I mean, for me, a lot of it was trying to feel like I fit in. And I think that is true of a lot of people who start drinking. Um, it's, there's a lot of, you know, self-confidence that goes into it. And, you know, and I just didn't, I didn't feel comfortable in my skin. And so the idea of like, I can't go to the happy hour and I'll miss out was also wrapped up in, you know, people will think that I'm lame or square or whatever. And it's like, you know, I'm 43 years old at this point. <laughs> like yes. I am a yeah. square, like no matter what, <laughs> like I am, I am a square at this point and it's fine. Well, and I think that's also a lot of the reason that women start drinking more. It's pretty common when they have kids. And it's not all about like, oh my God, it's hard to have kids. I mean, it, it is. And the toddler years are hard. Um, tip for anyone listening to it, it's actually easier when you stop drinking. I swear to God, and I know you don't believe me, I quit when my daughter was 22 months and I drank through my entire son's. Um, I quit the first time when he was five, the second time when he was eight. So it actually is way easier to parent when you're not hungover and short-tempered and feeling guilty and defensive. But a lot of the reason I think I started drinking more and a lot of my friends was to sort of reclaim that I'm not lame. I'm still a badass. I can still have fun (laughs) when you are tied down to this little adorable, but damn, they cry a lot in wine creature who is with you 24 seven. You're like, yeah, I may be scrubbing the toilet and changing diapers, but I'm still a badass. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so much messaging that tells us that too. Yeah. And so question for you too. One of the things we talked about on our book club call was, you know, a lot of people may or may not have read Holly Whitaker's book, Quit Like a Woman, but you said one of the things you loved about it was just her anger at the alcohol industry and how you feel that too. And I definitely, I feel like most women who quit drinking, it's like they finally like, they've been in the Truman Show and they finally step outside the bubble <laughs> and are like, holy shit, we've been lied to. But like, tell me about that anger and, and what what pisses you off the most. Boy, um, well, I, like I said, I'm on Twitter a lot. I get a lot of advertising. I see online advertising all the time. And like, and it's just, it's not like one thing. It's just the accumulation of the messaging around like you, you woman, like can, can be a cool, like 20 something drinker. And then you can be like a cool 30 something mom drinker. And then, you know, once you, you know, kind of become like, 40, 50, you know, irrelevant to the culture or whatever. You can be the wacky, like, lady who sits in her, you know, her rocking chair and drinks wine all day or martinis or whatever. Like, there's always a way that culture slots women into positions where they just are drinking. And and, and, and it's supposed to be appealing. And so, you know, I mean, 
I, we went to like, uh, my boyfriend and I were in like a small town recently and just kind of, oh, actually, you know, it might've been, um, it was near Bellingham. <laughs> we, were, we were going through um, this bookstore uh, and, you know, this is during COVID so we're walking around with our little masks on and like, then we get to this display of magnets and it's just like all like these terrible jokes about drinking you know, like, oops, forgot to bring, brought wine home instead of milk again, teehee, you know, and it's just, so it's not just, it's not just one thing. It's the fact that we've absorbed this culture that says that, you know, because the alcohol industry, you know, sees women as this, you know, new market to, you know, to really, really expand and expand and expand. um, We're just constantly hit with this messaging and particularly around wine you know, this idea that this is like the feminine way to just essentially be drunk all day. And, um, and it's not feminine or masculine. It's just, you know, it's just a poison that you're choosing to put into your body. And like, that's fine. Like, as I've said, you know, many times in writing, like I put poisons in my body all the time. Like I'm drinking a diet Coke right now. That's probably not good for me. I eat way too much sugar because that's what happens sometimes when you quit drinking. And, you know, and that's all bad. Like, I'm aware of that. And people can drink and it's fine for them. But um, but we're supposed to believe that it's not a poison. We're supposed to believe that it's always fun and always produces these, you know, wonderful results and makes us better women and more entertaining women and more interesting, sparkling women. And that's what makes me mad. Well, and it's the same way about body image, right? Like, it's the same thing about you know, every woman who's put on a magazine is thin, every woman who is pushed in any way is thin, you know, even the people who are incredibly in shape or airbrushed, like even, you know, the teen, you know, teen Cosmo or all these things, like, you know, it's how to get a boy and how to do your hair and how to lose 10 pounds. And, you know, it's, the alcohol way that they're, that they're marketing to women, shaping women, um, they're just associating femininity and empowerment and attractiveness and fun and freedom and all these things with a liquid in a glass. And that is very targeted. And then when you worry about it or when it becomes obvious, it's a problem. It's a joke. Like those socks. I hate those fucking socks that are like, if on the bottom of the socks, it's like, if oh, you yeah. this, bring mom wine. And I'm just like, that's a freaking nightmare. Like what the fuck? That's not funny. And you know what's going to happen? Like this is, this is my prediction. Once like, once the alcohol marketing to women, you know, once marketing wine to women is exhausted and it becomes passe, it's going to be like tequila or whiskey or one of these things that's sort of coded masculine now. And like, I've already heard that with gin. The gin is starting to be the new, like gin clubs for women and mixing gin. And then that's just going to be like, oh, you're even a a cooler woman. You're more of a sophisticated woman. Like it's just not going to stop. And they do it with men too. I mean, I remember the old commercials like back in the day. And it was when I was actually studying advertising in college that they used this as an example where it used to be, and I'm dating myself, like the weekends belonged to uh, Michelob. And like, mm-hmm. that was the, that was the tag phrase that was commercials. And then it was the nights belong to Michelob, like this uh-huh. beer. And then it was the days belong to Michelob. And then I shit you not, it became Michelob. Some days are better than others. Like that was literally the evolution of the, the tag. Yeah. And it's so wow. obvious when you look at that as to like, 
okay, now people are drinking on the weekends, but we really need them to drink every night. And then like, what the fuck? Yeah, you know, I mean, maybe they'll drink every day. Yeah. Like maybe you can just have a little like half, half glass of beer in the morning. Like, I mean, it, well, yeah, it's it is weekend, right. Like we're like, well, we don't drink on the weekends or in the morning. Well, except mimosas. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, it's insidious. It'll never end, you know? And I think the, I think the, the only tool is to be like media literate and, and to, you know, and to, to counter program yeah. um, with, you know, which is what I think, you know, groups like she recovers and, um, and groups like, you know, the women's AA group that I, that I go to, um, which is just like reminding you like, oh, actually there's like a really, really dark side to this. And there's not that much of an upside because it doesn't actually make you look like the woman in the advertisements. Yeah. And I know like it's, it's actually really unattractive to be, you know, super drunk and slurring and not remembering shit and losing your phone at a, uh, at a work party. And of course, I'm not talking about myself. (laughs) (laughs) It's not pretty. That's another great thing about sobriety. You don't lose your phone as much. You never do. You never lose your phone. You never forget what you've said to your boss. Like I remember coming home from a work party and I was like, my phone is missing. Where is my phone? And so I used that like, find your phone shit. It was in the back of my boss's car, which was 15 miles away because she had to drive me home. Like yeah, that's totally professional. And I was a director at this company. Like, I literally don't remember that happening. And I had to be, call her with my husband's phone and be like, so I think my phone, and then just like, what do you say? Like, Thanks for driving yeah. me home. I guess I must not have eaten, you know, I don't even know, right? Like something. And then yeah. just sort of like shamefully walk in on Monday and see if anyone's going to say anything to me. So yeah, the idea that you're sophisticated is not always true. And um, I, I love that you, you know, said about how you need to change your perspective. I think of it as deconditioning yourself from, you know, your entire lifetime of conditioning about what alcohol means and what it does and how it's required and a privilege. And I really think that one of the great ways to do that is to actually curate your social media feed. And that's actually really easy to do on Instagram because there are so many incredible people out there who are alcohol free. Like once you find a couple of them, you'll just go down this rabbit hole of more people and they are posting about how great it is to not drink and all the things they're doing without alcohol and quotes that make you really think that like not drinking is an incredible choice. And, you know, you fill your feed, you are like, oh my God, there's a huge universe out there of people who don't drink. And, you know, I I love Hello Someday Morning, which is out of Australia and just people posting Mm -hmm. about, you know, all the things they're doing without alcohol. And then also like fucking unsubscribe from your winery that you're following. (laughs) Like I used to get the Woodenville Wine like monthly email happenings and I think I was sober for a couple of months when I was like, why the fuck don't I just hit unsubscribe? Like, this is annoying me, making me feel bad, making me feel like I'm missing out. Like, let me subscribe to the farmer's market newsletter and the local bike club. Like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. There are all kinds of things you can do. And, and talking to people in, you know, private groups um, on Facebook or on zoom is also, you know, super helpful or just listening. I mean, I have, I have friends, um, a couple of friends right now who are struggling and trying to get sober and, you know, and they were like, uh, do I have to go to AA meetings? And I was like, well, you know, I mean, 
personally, I recommend trying it um, because it's free and because you'll get a lot of people's, you know, perspectives and experience. But I was like, you don't have to talk. You can just like show up, prove you're a human being by like, you know, talking to the administrator and then like dip out, you know, just put your, your, you know, take your photo down, whatever, and just listen. And even that, I mean, is, is better than like, just sitting on your computer and getting all this messaging that there's something wrong with you or that you're missing out. Yeah. And one of the things you talk about often is that all the judgment surrounding addiction can be really harmful to recovering addicts. And, you know, the notion that they're, you know, 90% of the population can drink quote unquote responsibly and that there's something wrong with you if you can't control your drinking, if you can't control basically taking an addictive substance, like, what's wrong with you. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that the thing that was hardest for me, um, besides just kind of realizing I was going to have to make amends to people and all that stuff was this notion that, you know, that I have something to be ashamed of because of some personal failing in myself. And I, and this is, this is actually one area where I think, you know, you were mentioning that AA can be problematic, um, and, and, you know, and it's done by amateurs and it's done differently everywhere, despite the fact that the book that they, that they use hasn't changed since the thirties, um, is that, you know, they teach you that, that you have a character defect and I don't think it's a character defect. I don't think that you become addicted to something because of character defects. And so I think that, you know, we absorb that and we take that into, you know, into our, our brains and hearts and we, um, you know, it, it requires a lot of work to think of addiction, not as something that's shameful, but as something that just happens to some people, just like diabetes, just like, you know, any other disease. It's a, it's a deadly brain. It's a potentially deadly brain disease. And it happens to some of us. Wow. I and love so, that. Potentially so, deadly brain disease. I mean, yeah. That's what I think it develops over time. time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, it's like diabetes, right? Like it's just, it's, it doesn't work for your body. And you have to make a change to what you ingest. I think it's really important, um, you know, to to un- to think and to realize and to just sort of internalize the fact that if people treat you as if being um, not drinking or not being able to drink is shameful, turn it around on them. I mean, just you know, it, you have to internalize the fact that it's not your fault. And, and that can take, you know, and that takes work and it takes, you know, real hard internal work. But um, the, you know, if, if somebody says, why aren't you drinking? You know, I might say, you know, I mean, usually I just say I don't drink. And if they say why, I'll say, well, you know, uh, why do you drink? You know, or I'll say, oh, oh, I'm an alcoholic and just stare them right in the face. That'll keep them quiet, right? Yeah. And it's like, and if they have, and, and often what happens from that is that uh, people will, you know, sort of say, Oh, okay. And not, and sort of walk off awkwardly. And then what I found is a lot of times people will approach me later and be like, so, um, yeah. So tell me about how you, how, how did you uh, figure out you had a drinking problem? Cause they're asking for themselves. Yeah. And so people who are really interested in your drinking, like they probably have a reason. I think um, and it's not about you. I've actually had really awesome conversations with people. And trust me, I did not do this at first, right? I think that you you share whatever is right for you when you're at the right time. Um, but a couple years in, you know, I, I was, even before I kind of became a co- sober coach or anything, I just was like, yeah, I quit drinking. And they're like, really? And I'm like, yeah, I haven't had a drink in three years. And they're like, wow, why? And I'm like, you know, it was just... Um, 
you know, it's addictive and it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard to just have a couple if you really love it. And I loved it and it was making me feel awful and spiking my anxiety. And I just feel a ton better without it. And typically a lot of people have been like, that's awesome. Good for you. Or, um, gosh, I, my buddy just, you know, just went to rehab or, or my, my mother quit drinking or, I mean, there is not a person in this world who does not know someone who has struggled with alcohol or something else. And I found that like, you know, the photographer at my old office at L'Oreal was just like talking to me after I said that, you know, he was taking a headshot of me and we had an incredible conversation about his best friend. And trust me, that would never have happened if I hadn't been like, oh, I used to drink and I quit. I was, I was on the phone the other day with like, like doing the most mundane, like business thing that I have to do for, with the, with the tax office at the state. And, um, and I'm talking to this guy and he's like, by the way, I looked you up and I saw your book and, um, and he's like, you know, and I've been sober for 13 years and we started talking about like, you know, what it was like getting sober in this area and like living in Seattle, you know, 20 years ago. And like, we had this like great conversation, like, and this is like a guy at the insurance office, you know, (laughs) and the, the more you get open to it and only when you're ready, the more support you find. And the more you realize you're not alone. Like I had this guitar teacher and he was like, oh, so what made you decide to start playing guitar? And I was like, well, I quit drinking and I just kind of thought it'd be a great thing to do it, you know, in the evenings. And I've always wanted to do it. So what the hell? And he was like, oh yeah, I'm sober 13 years. And I'm just like, oh, wow, we had this whole new level of like, cool, you know, like whatever it was. And, you know, that wouldn't have happened. So I I think you're totally right. Like the stigma is also often because nobody talks about it, right? Mm -hmm. And the more you're open and the less you label and judge yourself, the more, you know, people are going to pick up on that and not feel like it is the pariah to even mention it or, you know, that you're going to, you know, shatter like glass if someone says something and they're just going to be like, oh, wow, it sounds like that's good. You know, good for you. Yeah, it takes a while. I mean, it, you know, for me, I am like an oversharer by nature, so it didn't take (laughs) (laughs) But like a lot of people are very private and I totally understand that too. Um, but I do think like to the extent that you can um, talk about it openly after whatever period, you know, of time feels comfortable. Um, that's how we get rid of shame. And that's how yeah. we get rid of stigma, stigma is by is by saying this is something that happens to a lot of people, yeah. a lot of people, because this is an addictive substance that a lot of people consume. So it just, you know, stands to reason that a lot of people get addicted to it. And, and I think that um, even as you share your story, people pick up on that, too. They're like, wow, you know, Erica, you're successful, you're smart, you went to college, you have a good life. And, and she's just like me, you know, and so I'm not somehow have this, you know, character flaw, that this happened to me. And even if you don't talk to other people, I think it's really important to shift that conversation in your own head about, you know, there's something wrong with me, or this is something to be ashamed of, even just extending yourself that self compassion. helps you so much just move through life more happily. Mm -hmm. So I also wanted to mention, we talked on this briefly, but it does blow my mind. We talked about this when we were talking about how many women are drinking and, and the increase in real medical, you know, negative outcomes for people who drink too much and how we think we're 
sort of immune or it won't happen to us. But, you know, I know in your book, you talk about alcohol use disorders, that they're more common than opioid addiction, even though that is what's all over the news and is tragic. But it kills more people than opioid addiction. Um, 88,000 at last count every single year. I mean, honestly, like that's that is the last count. And I yeah. think that it, it, it can only 88,000 a year. I mean, I'm sure it's higher, but think about that. I mean, it's like up there with heart disease and cancer. And, you know, despite that, they're not the only warning label is if you're pregnant, like there's no indication that like 88,000 people die from overconsumption of this, this substance every year. It's marketed as harmless. It's a carcinogen too. I mean, why are there not warning labels? I mean, because of lobbying. Yeah, <laughs> because of lobbying. But yeah, I mean, I think if there was, um, if there was like, you know, I, I mean, if you look at opioids, there was a lot of marketing of opioids and that really contributed to the epidemic that's happening yes. now. And, you know, and so there are efforts to crack down on the marketing, but the marketing for opioids was not everybody should be taking opioids. It was, you know, oh, if you're in pain, like you need this, this, you need, you need Oxycontin and it's totally not addictive. Don't even worry about it. So that is like, that's a slice of the population, but alcohol is marketed to everyone as being safe and, you know, maybe even healthy. You know, there's all these alcohol funded studies all the time about how wine is healthy. And so, um, you know, and maybe even beer and, oh, maybe even vodka, you know, (laughs) so maybe alcohol itself is healthy. And, um, and it's not, and it's a carcinogen, it causes heart disease, and it causes all these problems in people who don't even have alcohol use disorders necessarily, but, you know, who are consuming this thing that is just like, and I mean, it is a poison. Well, and forget about Um, drunk driving and everything else and not being able to take care of people should something happen to your family after you've drank a bottle of wine or, you know, whatever it is. So, but yeah, it's, a huge, huge issue. And I've had even people I know who've said, who've had breast cancer, who've had various, you know, serious um, kinds of breast cancer and treatments who've said, gone to their doctor and said, well, I really want to stop drinking because of the association with breast cancer. And this is their doctor for that. And the doctor said, well, I don't think you need to be that hard on yourself. Like, a glass every once in a while. And this person, which is so hard to do is saying, I don't want to drink. Like nobody says that if there is not something underneath it. And the, so then she's saying, it's always popping up in my mind that even my doctor says it's okay. So am I overreacting? And I'm like, that is about her and her relationship with alcohol. And I mean, it's not true, right? The American Cancer Association just finally said that zero level of alcohol is healthy and that it causes cancer. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, that that's a blip for one day. And then there's just like the barrage, you know, of constant, you know, this is good for you. This relieves stress. Yeah. You know, I mean, somebody was, somebody was telling me that they like went in for, um, for panic attacks, um, and were told basically you need to go home and drink a glass of wine and, um, and that by a doctor, even though um, drinking causes anxiety and yeah, all the yeah. stuff that comes it's, with it. It's seen as like, it's seen as an anti-anxiety drug. And, you know, I mean, just, just imagine like, I don't know, imagine if we were prescribing, you know, Ambien and, oh, well, I guess we are prescribing. Yeah, we Ambien are. 
But it's just another example of that. I mean, my doctor, when I was, you know, trying to get sober, of course, I was totally dishonest with my doctor and I lied about how much I drank, but, um, but, you know, she never pressed. I mean, even when it was obvious, even when I came in, I had tachycardia one time and had to go to the hospital. um, And that was at that doctor's. And she never said, you know, does this have something to do with your drinking? Yeah. Which you would think like that's a logical step, but it's just, it's just not something we think of. Well, and one thing, I mean, I wasn't honest with my doctor until I actually stopped drinking, which is crazy. And mm-hmm. I went in to my doctor and I was, you know, talking about other things. And she was like, wow, you seem so much better than you were a year ago. What's what, what are you doing? And I said, well, I quit drinking and my anxiety's down and my I'm exercising more and I'm sleeping better. And she was like, holy shit, I wish every patient I had would do this because it, look at you, you know, like it's night and day. And I was like, yeah, I'm really proud of myself, you know, which is more positive feedback than you get from anyone else. Um, and, And I know that not every doctor reacts that way. And a lot of it is about how educated your doctor is and what their own personal relationship with alcohol is. I mean, I've worked with a lot of women who are nurses who struggle with, with drinking. And there is that period of denial before that period of sort of knowledge and like, oh, damn, you know, we all buy into that culture, even if you're a doctor, even if you're a nurse. Mm-hmm. So I know one of the things that I feel like is the best message that I personally took away from your book is that it takes a lot of trying to know what works for you. Mm-hmm. I think that's so powerful. So tell you know, tell me about that. And if there's anything you want to leave women with who might be listening to this. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that um, for me, I tried traditional talk therapy. I tried um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which again, like shout out to cognitive behavioral therapy. It's the best. Uh, I tried AA um, when I was still drinking, which, you know, I don't really advise that, but it didn't help. <laughs> Um, I tried um, a non 12 step program. I tried like atheist AA, which is like a whole other like male trip um, to go on. Um, But the point is, you know, and I went to treatment, I went to detox, I did like thing after thing after thing. And the thing that ultimately worked was all of those. Um, I don't think there's anything that I tried that I didn't get something out of, Um, you know, including going to detox, you know, and just detoxing for five days, including, I mean, I talk in the book about one detox I went to that was like, um, for indigent people and it was free. I didn't know that when I showed up, um, and I stayed there and I ended up leaving against medical advice because it was just, it was horrible. And I was like, I don't belong here with these people because I thought I was better than them. I learned something from that. And so, um, I would not have gotten sober. I think I truly believe if I hadn't been through all those things first. So whatever it takes, even if it's, you know, even if like you go to your first AA meeting and you're like, oh my God, this is the thing for me. Like, and you're, you know, and you're one of those people that just gets it right away. That's great. But if you're not, that's great too, because you just have to keep trying. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a pain in the ass sometimes. And, you know, it isn't always fun. And a lot of this journey has been really hard. But, um, but it was, but every step along the way was worth it. So, you know, I, I think that um, the main message of the book is just don't give up because, um, you know, you, you always have another chance. I love that. That's awesome. And I think that's a great place to leave this. Um, how would you suggest that people other than buying your book can follow you? I'll link to the book in the show notes, but 
um, I think people might want to learn more about you and the work you're doing. Yeah, I'm uh, so I'm on Twitter um, at Erica C. Barnett. Erica's with a C. Um, and I'm also on Facebook. I don't update there that much. I'm on Instagram. Um, that is mostly the um, Erica's travel and cooking channel. So Ooh, I want to follow that. I'll put it in the show notes and you send me the link. <laughs> yeah, so I'm on all the major social media. Cool. That's awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. If you're interested in learning more about me, the work I do, and access free resources and guides to help you build a life you love without alcohol, please visit hellosomedaycoaching.com. And I would be so grateful if you would take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast so that more women can find it and join the conversation about drinking less and living more. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.